Before Christmas several years ago, uh, Justine Sacco was flying from New York, where she worked as a corporate PR officer, to visit her family in South Africa. And she was 30 and bored, and so she began to tweet snarky little jokes about traveling. Before her flight from New York took off, she tweeted, Weird German dude, you're in first class, get some deodorant. So you can see the kind of travel mood she was in. Then during her layover at Heathrow, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. Before she got on the 11-hour flight to Cape Town, she wrote, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Then she fell asleep as the plane began its 11-hour flight across Africa. And when the plane finally landed and was taxiing in, Justine turned on her phone and she got a, a text from someone that she hadn't heard from since high school. And the text was, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Then she got a call from her best friend, Hannah, you are the number one worldwide trend on Twitter right now. A whole hashtag had gotten started, hashtag, just, has Justine landed yet? Her Twitter feed became a horror show. Uh, people uh, said things like, how did Justine Sacco get a PR job? They called her a racist, an idiot, and things too, uh, too dark for me to use them here. There's a company, GoGo, that provides uh, internet flight services, you know, so you can get on the internet during your flight. And they used it for marketing. They tweeted out, next time you plan to tweet something stupid before you take off, make sure you're getting on a GoGo flight. CC Justine Sacco. Her employer said, uh, this is an outrageous, offensive comment, and issued a statement saying that the company and Ms. Sacco had parted ways. Justine had meant the tweet as kind of an ironic joke, as a comment on her own white privilege. She apologized profusely. She says she cried out her body weight in tears in the first 24 hours. But the shame machine had taken over. Now, in that moment, imagine that you work with Justine. Or you did until today. Okay. Would you... A, stay out of it. B, text her privately. I'm sorry for what you're going through. Or C, tweet publicly, at Justine Sacco has been a great co-worker. Stop hating on her. So let's, let's see the uh, show of hands. How many of you would choose A, stay out of it? Okay. And how many of you would choose B, send her a text saying, I'm sorry for what you're going through? And how many of you would choose see public tweet saying, stop hating on Justine Sacco? All right, looking around, I did not see a lot of hands on C. <laughs> because we all know, do we not? If I stand up for Justine, people are going to hate on me. They're going to think I'm racist. They're going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think I believe and support in every word she said. And so, therefore, we do not go near a person who is being rejected because we will be. 
well, we often use the phrase, what would Jesus do? But what would Jesus do in, in a situation like this if he, he, if he had been a co-worker? I invite you tonight to watch and just see what Jesus does in three situations with three people, all of whom are off-limits. I think it will give us an insight into Jesus that a lot of people actually do not have. And fair warning, though, uh, it was challenging to me this week, and it will be challenging to all of us, I think. So let's jump in. If you, we'll start there at Matthew 9 and verse 9 in tonight's gospel. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Matthew, make sure that the enemy army from Rome occupying your country has enough money for its weapons. Uniforms, barracks, and all the things that go along with their control. Rome taxes you using people like him who sell out, and the taxes run so high, there are a number of cases historically where farmers had to abandon their land and just walk off. They couldn't live as farmers with the taxes on the produce. There, there are incidents where whole towns became ghost towns because people just fled. Um, and sometimes tax collectors would beat people to get the money out of them. So then you add to the exorbitant taxes that the tax collector gets paid on whatever else he can extract from you. So when you pay your taxes to Matthew, he is getting richer and richer and you can no longer really even get groceries on the table. So the way people feel about Matthew is the way people in our country felt about Martin Shkreli. Anybody remember that name from the news about eight years ago? Yes. No, different guy. Different guy. This guy was touring pharmaceutical. Anybody remember him? Okay, well, here, here's the details. He was the CEO of that company, and his pharmaceutical company brought the rights, bought the rights manufacturing to a medication called Daraprim. And Daraprim is the best treatment for several infections that are caused by parasites. And so uh, patients with, uh, say, AIDS rely on it to live. Well, as soon as Martin Shkreli had the rights to that drug, he raised the price from, get this, $13 a dose to $750 a dose. Yeah, it was something like a 5,400 and some odd percent increase. Okay. Well, when that news came out, Martin Shkreli became the most hated person in America. People called him, and I quote, a morally bankrupt sociopath, a scumbag, and everything that is wrong with capitalism. And it is someone to someone like this, only with the name Matthew instead of Martin, that Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. He intentionally invites him to be one of his students, one of his closest friends, and someone who will represent him to others. No PR firm is approving this move. 
but it gets worse. Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with, quote, many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So why are those the people invited? They're the only ones who will come. They're traitors of their people. They are extorters. They are people who work on the Sabbath and violate God's law. So Jesus is now at this party, and all these rogues are passing along plates piled high with food. They're all drinking from bottles of wine together, have another drink. They're they're talking together, and they're laughing together. And you just wonder, Jesus, do you not know Psalm 1? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers? Well, the Pharisees do know that verse. And they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? And apparently the disciples have no answer. So Jesus has to answer, and he does. Verse 12, when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he adds, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And here he quotes Isaiah. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to show mercy. And then he says, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is saying the deep heart of God is to show mercy to messed up people. And to show mercy costs Jesus something. He is now seen as condoning what they do. People now think, oh, so, so this new rabbi, you support those who are gouging our poor to prop up the pagan Roman military machine. Is that where you really are? Jesus knows he's going to be tagged with all of that. But he goes to the party anyway. Jesus is willing to be rejected in order to be with the rejected. Karen and I have a good friend um, whose son was driving home from a bar late one night, and he was involved in a three-car accident in which a young woman with her life ahead of her was killed. He was sent to jail. And every week, Karen wrote him a letter, just letting him know, she just wanted him to have something to open, something to do, something to remember that there's people on the outside who actually still know you and care about you. Then the the jail banned, for whatever reason, anything coming in an envelope. That became impassable. So, So then she began buying postcards. And everywhere we'd go, she'd go, do they have postcards here? And um, People don't send a lot of postcards as much anymore, but she sent one every week. Now, many people in America would say, this young guy made his bed, now lie in it. But Jesus says something different. He says, go and find out what this means. I want you to show mercy. And when that young man was finally released... He could not stop thanking Karen for those postcards. Now this is how Jesus responds to person number one, the 
morally repugnant. Now let's meet person number two, the medically repulsive. Verse 20. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years, let's just pause, 12 years, with constant bleeding, came up behind Jesus. She has suffered so long. You know, when you've been sick a long time, you stop feeling, I have a problem, and you, you start to feel, I am the problem. And you're in, this woman is anemic from constant blood loss, but there are no blood banks, no hospitals or clinics where she can get any kind of uh, receive blood. The Bible tells us in other versions that she's already spent all her money trying to get better from doctors. It hasn't helped. She's just gotten worse, actually. You know, as a pastor, one of the cool things I get to do is visit shut-ins. And, you know, the one thing that they miss most about not being able to come here for worship is touch. People holding their hand at the passing of the peace. Maybe giving them a gentle hug. And in the rehab center or whatever, you don't really get that unless they're messing with you medically or something. It's just not the same. And this woman is in that same predicament where she is not touched. Leviticus 15, if a woman has a flow of blood for many days, she is ceremonially unclean. Anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until evening. And if you touch any object she has sat on, you must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water and you will remain unclean until evening. Her, blood, uh, her bleeding means, therefore, utter isolation. She cannot go near anyone because she's considered unclean and if she touches anyone, then they will be. Scholar Craig Keener helps us feel this, this woman's pain. Her ailment probably, he says, had <clears throat> excuse me, kept her from marriage if it started at puberty and almost surely would have led to divorce if it began after she was married since intercourse was prohibited under such circumstances and childlessness normally led to divorce. So he said, to be an unmarriageable woman in first century Jewish Palestine must have often been terrifying. The stigma of childlessness, the pain of feeling left over, the dilemma of being unable to earn an income, yet not having a husband or children to help support you. So it it made this woman's condition completely unbearable. So she decides she's going to sneak up to Jesus. She's probably veiled. She's furtive. I imagine she was sort of darting her way between people. And she knows, I'm going to be making this rabbi unclean. But she reaches out and touches one of the tassels on one of the four corners of his robe because she thinks, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Verse 22, Jesus turns around, sees her, and what does he say? Does he say, how could you touch me? Now you've made me completely unclean. I have to quarantine. I have to wash until evening. No, his first word to her is, daughter. Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. 
And the woman is healed at that moment. And I wonder if one of the biggest parts of the healing was that word he spoke to her, daughter. You know, Jesus could have said nothing about the touch and kept going. There was a lot of people around him. Nobody would have known. But he chooses to speak about it publicly, even though knowing that when he does that, he will be immediately, in the eyes of everyone, be made unclean. And he does it because he wants to make her healing public so that everybody knows this woman you stay away from, you don't have to anymore. She's healed. She's clean. She can be restored to life and friendships and earning a living. Now, can we pause and take in that Jesus is willing to become untouchable to heal someone who is untouchable? When I was in Antigua, Guatemala one time, I visited a home for people with severe uh, developmental uh, challenges, delays. Many were walking around, playing with balls in the rec room there. Some of them would come up and uh, give hugs to the visitors, like me. But one child uh, was, in a, was in a bed because his body was completely contorted. Very uh, difficult position. I, I couldn't imagine what his muscles were like. And his mouth was his mouth was wide open and his head was back and so therefore drool was coming down his face there was a, a card there on his bed frame that noted his name was Carlos and Carlos was kind of rocking and making guttural sounds and honestly my first instinct was to turn away and keep moving with the tour and then I realized the Catholic nuns here take care of Carlos. They've put a towel around his neck to catch the drool. His sheets are clean. His clothes are clean. In fact, in one of the most bitterly ironic things I've ever seen, he was wearing a t-shirt, a cast-off t-shirt from a U.S. high school with the cheery slogan, Go For It, and a Spartans logo. But out of their identification with Jesus, every day these nuns change Carlos, they feed Carlos, they clean Carlos, they change his drooling towel. He is known, he is named, he is touched, he is cared for. No matter how difficult or repulsive someone's condition becomes, Jesus sees them and he calls them daughter. He calls them son. What will Jesus do with this third person, the most untouchable of all? If you turn to verse 18. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died. But you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. Now, the answer to this request, to touch a dead person, is an automatic no for anyone, but especially for a rabbi. From the book of Numbers, all those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, not just till the evening, 
a whole week. And they must purify themselves on the third and seventh days with the water of purification. All those who touch a dead body and don't purify themselves in the proper way defile the Lord's tabernacle and they will be cut off from the community of Israel. Why would Jesus ever touch a dead body? He'd have to quarantine for a week and if he doesn't pure himself on the right days and in the right way, be cut off from his people. So you don't do it. But Jesus goes with this girl's dad. We know from other places in the Bible that his name is Jairus. And as far as I can see, there is only one possible reason he would do that. It's because he knows that just about the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone is to lose a child. I know the, the saddest day in my life was walking into a funeral home in R- Rhode Island and seeing this tiny white casket up front for our eight-year-old nephew. It wrecked me. Uh, anyway, verse 23, when Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and he heard the funeral music. If, if your loved one dies, you hire at least two flute players and at least one mourning woman, okay? But Jesus tells them, get out. The girl's not dead. She's just asleep. And professional mourners know very well the difference between somebody who's dead and somebody who's asleep. So they start mocking Jesus. He knows that, but he takes it. And after the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus goes in. There's a hush that comes over a room when someone is dead. And he walks in. I imagine the girl's stretched out on the bed. There's no movement, no breath. The fingertips, the lips are coming blue. And Jesus could call her back from the dead without touching her. He did that with his friend Lazarus. But instead, he takes this girl by the hand. He touches her, and she stands up. It's like that in that touch, the warmth of his hand kind of spreads through her cold hand, and his, it's like his heartbeat jumpstarts her heartbeat. Our mouths should really drop open first that Jesus can bring somebody back from the dead. And second, that he's willing to take her hand knowing as soon as I do in everyone's eyes, I am unclean. So what do we do with this amazing quality of Jesus Christ? Well, let me say a word to two different but overlapping groups of people. And I hope one of these words will fit you. Maybe both will. The first word is for those of you who feel marginalized. You know what it's like to be kept at a distance by others. Maybe you carry some visible sign, more distressing than, say, the tremor in my left hand, but something that marks you as different. Maybe you carry a secret shame. Do you know that Jesus wants to be near you? 
He sees you. And he chooses to move toward you. To show mercy to you. To touch you. To call you daughter or call you son. We need to receive him tonight and know what that's like. We can't understand it. Just receive it. The second word I have is for those who you just love this about Jesus, that he moves toward people who are the morally sick, physically sick, the unclean, the unwanted, the untouchable. And you want to join him in this amazing work. Here's a word on how we all might do that a little better. And here's my suggestion. Move from seeing people with a category or a label and see them as an individual. Let me give you an example. Every time I go to Wheaton Public Library, there is someone who is snoozing in one of the chairs with four target bags or tote bags stuffed with belongings around them. And I immediately think category, homeless. And so I walk on by. But for a time, I served at pads. And I worked the 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift. The staff wisely there assessed my level of cooking and put me on buttering toast. <laughs> and... <laughs> And then after I, we served them breakfast and cleaned it up, we would talk with the guests, any who wanted that. And one guy, I'll call him Jim, I discovered he, well, first of all, what took me back was he was dressed exactly like I am. Business, I was in business casual, so was he. And he was carrying a cell phone. And I said, hey, Jim, you know, like, uh, tell me about yourself. He, he, uh, had some super crazy medical bills and then a divorce. And that whammy, that one-two financial whammy meant he was without a home. But he wasn't without a, a job or a, a cell phone or clothes so that when he walked into work, I'm guessing nobody knew he was homeless. And he made a point of telling me as he went out that day, thank you. As though he was like thanking a server or a maitre d' or something. Another guest was smoking outside the Lutheran church. And so I sat down and we got talking. I'll call her Sherry. Sherry wanted to tell me why she believed in God. And I'm like, oh, well, why is that, Sherry? She said, well, one time I was really down on my luck and I prayed to God. And I found, a, that day, I found a $20 bill behind the bushes of the Catholic church. She, she had some mental challenges. She was a little hard to follow. But she had a real faith. And then another woman, Tanya, she told me about her pet cat, Archie. And I was like, oh, where, where's your cat? In my car. And I got more of her story. Tanya does not have a home. But Tanya's going to make sure that Archie never has that problem. The little money she makes goes to either car repairs or cat food. We cannot love a category. 
You can't love a label. But if we see a, a person, a person with a name, a person with a story, a person with needs, then all of a sudden we, we see Jim and we see Sherry and we see Tanya and we understand that beneath any label, any stigma, there is somebody who's waiting to be called daughter or son. Jesus is willing to be rejected, to be with the rejected. 